Shabbat Shalom. Welcome back. Let's turn. I'm excited. Let's turn. We are going to Yechezko, the book of Ezekiel. We're in the first scroll. We took a break for a couple of weeks, but we're back. The first scroll that actually began in what's called chapter 8. We worked our way through that chapter, and we are in part 2, scroll 1. Let's jump right in, Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, within the first scroll, there's going to be many segments because it goes all the way through till the end of what's called chapter 19. So you can see that first scroll was a very dense compilation of text. Verse 6 of what we call chapter 9, we're in scroll 1 of the book of Ezekiel. Slay utterly the old man, the young woman, and the virgin. So again, we start out here with a very, very serious word. Slay utterly the old man, the young woman, and the virgin, and little children and women. This is something that definitely wouldn't be taught on your Sunday morning service because there's no way that you can just soften this up. I mean, when you open like that, you know it's going to be a serious word of Yahweh to the people, and it's not something that's going to gather in those that are faint-hearted. This is a message for those that are discerning, that are mature in the word in these days to be able to hear the direction of the Ruach HaKodesh in our lives. This isn't something to gather the faint-hearted that are going to walk away. This is to gather those true sheep that are ready for the mature message, the meat of Yahuwah's word, because we start with the slaying not only of the old man, but of the young woman, but of the virgin, and even down to the little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and judgment begins where? At the household of Yah, at the sanctuary. Then they began at the old men that were before the house. So what does this tell us about how Yahuwah brings forth his judgment in the end days? Because we're looking at the cycles, the revolutions, and we'll get into that, the wheels of Ezekiel. This is how judgment begins, not only in Jerusalem of yesteryear, but of, of course, our prophetic future. I believe this is how judgment will begin in the great tribulation. Number one. First, the old man. Why the old man? Well, the old man, the old men, the older generations, they should have known better. And they have a responsibility, do they not, to steer the younger generations towards righteousness. But they haven't done that. Today, I look out at the older generations that are running our political system And they have done nothing to steer the younger generations in the paths of righteousness. And therefore, judgment starts with the old men that should have known better. They should have steered the next successive generation in the paths of Yahuwah, and they did not do it. So then judgment goes secondly unto the, to the young people. Now the young people, they should have had the strength. They should have had the energy to stand 
up and drive back evil. Where the old may be frail, the younger generation, they should have had the strength, the energy, and the might to push back. And sometimes it takes a little bit of youthful vigor to push back with that zeal that maybe the older generation didn't have, but now they're being held responsible. And then thirdly, we see the mothers. Why the mothers? Well, because they failed to raise their children in the way. They failed to resist the encroaching paganism. They failed to resist the syncretism that was all around them. And therefore, the mothers now are being held to account. You can see this progression, can't you? And finally, the judgment lays hold even on the children. Why? Because we have to look at the youth. I see this all the way today especially in my work environment, the youth have succumbed to the spirit of the times. They have succumbed to the spirit of the times and they have died, therefore, with the guilty seniors. This is a cyclical judgment and you can understand why Yahweh pours it out that way. Look at verse 9. Then he said unto me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. So their iniquity is far greater than Sodom, isn't it? Far greater than Sodom. Because when Yahuwah declared judgment on Sodom, he said that their iniquity was very grave. But here we have the double very. This is double the judgment because it's even greater than that of Sodom to which only one very was attributed. Gives you a real, real perspective here on how that progression of judgment and looks again how we can see that this will roll forward. Look at chapter 10 now, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, in the firmament that was over the head of the cherubim or the cherubim, there appeared above them as it were a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And to me, especially understanding the Malkitzedic connection, I see the linkage here to that higher calling. Look at the language. It's the linkage right here back to, of course, Mount Sinai and the book of the covenant calling. Just as there was the ratifying of the book of the covenant and the Malkitzedic priesthood, with that came what? The very firmament of the heavens and a sapphire stone followed by the words of Yahweh to the community that were gathered at the Ten Commandments, here, what do we see? This is the very converse of that, isn't it? This is the very converse. The desecration. Why? Because they desecrated the very word of Yahweh. It all started off with the sapphire stone coming to the mountain and the glorification of the word of Yahuwah. But now this judgment comes upon them conversely because they've desecrated the very word of Yahuwah. And then we see now as we progress through these next chapters, the, instead of the 10 words that were given back in Exodus 24, we're going to see the 10 steps of descent as the glory of Yahuwah begins to remove itself through 10 steps of descent and finally leaves them. Finally leaves them. This is the very converse 
of Exodus 24. And it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years of progressive progressive rebellion against Yahuwah. But we're starting to see cycles, aren't we? Yahuwah is not linear, it's cyclical. And these wheels of prophecy rolled forward to the Romans and they are rolling forward to our day, the great tribulation. We don't know when, but we know it is a wheel that rolls forward and this is a cyclical, cyclical biblical narrative. And you can see it as the language develops because as the glory of Yahuwah departs eastward to the Mount of Olives, we see the foundation of the Malkit-Zedek priesthood was established where? With the New Testament community, it was established on the very Mount of Olives, on that Paraduma altar, the red heifer altar, where Yahusha would have died as that Kohen Haggadah, high priest of the order of Malkit-Zedek. We can see here, year by year, of course, up on the Mount of Olives, the red heifer was burnt. In this future, future place, generations later, they would see the Spirit again, once depart from the very temple. They would see the Spirit depart from Yahusha himself, the crucified Master of Glory. But little did they know that that Spirit would in fact raise up from the dead three nights and three days later. So as an epoch in Israel's history comes to a close here, as the Torah ceases to be a tangible reality with them then, the withdrawal of the Torah and the glory of Yahuwah should be accompanied by the same circumstances of its giving, right? Am I, are you guys tracking with me or not at all? I'm seeing many, many blank faces. What I'm talking about in layman's terms, the very things that accompanied the giving of the Torah in Exodus 24, then it should be apparent that the very things that accompanied the giving of the Torah would be there at the withdrawing of his presence years later in rebellion. You give it and you squander it, therefore everything when it is withdrawn is taken back too. This is the cyclical narrative that we're seeing. Okay? Do you understand? Because otherwise I'm, I'm feeling very alone up here, and I'm wondering if I'm just seeing this, and this is making no French at all to anybody. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 2. And he spake unto the man clothed in linen and said, Go in between the whirling wheels, even under the cherub, the cherub, and fill both thy hands with the coals of the fire from between the cherubim, the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in my sight. Of course, the cherubim, they don't have to be limited to those that would, would have sat upon the Ark of the Covenant, but they can actually be understood as the bearers of Yahuwah's glory. That's what the Heravim, the cherubim are, the bearers of Yahuwah's glory. And Yahusha, we know, he demonstrates his mercy here towards sinners. 
If you believe, as I do, that the man clothed in linen is a prophetic forward of what Yahushua accompanies in his position as high priest, note the date that we looked at this vision, chapter 8, verse 1, and then note historically, when did the judgment on Jerusalem happen? You can see that Yahushua brings forth mercy here towards sinner, sinners because he tempers his decree of judgment with compassion. What do I mean? This vision actually took place in the sixth year, chapter 8, verse 1. But Yahushua, if you believe he's the man in linen as I do, he must have took hold of those coals He must have took hold of those coals in two hands and allowed those coals to literally cool in his hands, burning his hands for five long years before what? The burning destruction of Jerusalem happened in the 11th year. That's five years of him taking the punishment. You see, this is showing us how judgment is always balanced with mercy and ultimately it's the hands of the man in linen that will bear the punishment for the sinner this is huge as we know that the wheel rolled forward to that very mount of olives so the judgment was given in the sixth year but the master in linen allows those coals to cool for five years and then the fiery destruction on Jerusalem doesn't happen until the 11th year, five years later. Look at verse 3. Now the cherubim, the cherubim, stood on the right side of the house when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of Yahuwah mounted up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of Yahuwah's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even to the outer court and the voice of Elohim Almighty when he speaketh. Now this is very different than the cloud that represented Yahweh's presence because this cloud is distinctly different. Remember back in the tabernacle when that cloud came, it represented Yahweh's presence. There was the pillar of fire by night and there was the cloud that led the children of Israel. But also as that incense went up on the altar, this all signified Yahweh's presence. But we know his presence is about to depart. So this cannot be signifying his presence. This must be signifying something distinctly different because today, in this revelation Ezekiel is declaring this cloud this represents judicial blindness upon the elders of Israel it started with the older generation all the way down judicial blindness that's what this cloud represents darkness that was enveloping the very vision of the Jewish nation they were becoming blind to the things of Yahuwah that it took the prophet opening up a hole in the wall to expose them because that light shone into the darkness I'm using New Testament metaphors to those of you that of course are tracking with me but this darkness here is an end emblem of that blindness which is to come upon the Jews at this time historically of judgment and it will continue through the generations until what does it say in the New Testament until the what 
the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You see, the cherubim, they stood on the right of the temple because they were trying to avoid the north side, bad cars on the north side. That's where all the abominations were. So these cherubim are trying to stand back from the abominations. They are on the other side. But the coals of fire, they were an emblem of the wrath of Yahuwah against Jerusalem and the destruction of it that would come in that 11th year by fire. The cause of this wrath and ruin, it was the ill treatment of the prophets of Yahuwah, was it not? That was the cause. And prophetically, that wheel, it rolled forward. It rolled forward into the city years and years later. Yes, there was the destruction of the prophets in the time of Ezekiel, but prophetically their wheel of destruction of the same city will roll forward to the Romans, owing not to the rejection of the prophets, but what? To the rejection and killing of the Messiah right on that very, very mount which the presence of Yahweh was departing to. And then later, that judgment came Not only because of the rejection and killing of Messiah, but the killing and rejection of the apostles and the disciples too. Yahweh is leaving the temple. But not only here, we understand it prophetically. Because we know a little before the destruction of the Jerusalem by the Romans, by the testimony of the historian Josephus, there was a voice that was heard within the very temple. Let us go forth hence. Let us go forth hence. And the very presence of Yahuwah again left that temple at the destruction in 70 of the common era. And where is Yahuwah's presence gone now? Out to the outer court. Out to the nations. To the court of the Gentiles. And we're the recipients of it here in the exile. Look at chapter 10 verse 6. And it came to pass when he commanded the man clothed in linen. Saying take fire from between the whirling wheels. Now we're getting into the vision of the wheels. From between the cherubim that he went in and stood beside a wheel. And the cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubim, the cherubim, unto the fire that was between the cherubim, and took thereof, and put it into the hands of him that was clothed in linen, who took it and went out. And there appeared in the cherubim the form of a man's hand under the wings. And I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside one cherub, and another wheel beside another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like that of a beryl stone. And as of their appearance, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been within a wheel." And when they went out, they went out in the four directions. They turned, not as they went, but to the place whither they had looked. They followed it. They turned, not as they went. And their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all round about. Even the wheels that had four had. This, of course, has troubled 
commentators and Bible theologians for millennia. And it is the most complex, one of the most complex textual narratives to decipher. In fact, it's actually banned in the yeshiva to study this because you're getting into the heavenly majesties and it's just a realm that is so uncertain in so many aspects. So I'm not going to pretend that I've got full understanding on this narrative. This is something that men and women have tackled for millennia. But let's look and see what the word says to us in this day. Because we are being enlightened like no other generation before us. We have the testimony of Messiah and we are keeping his commandments. Believe that Yahweh has chosen you and has given you the anointing and the discernment to see things that has been hidden from previous generations. It's not me, it's not you, it is the power that has come upon this generation that has given us the insight to see. You have to believe that. I believe that. It's not to build man up, it's not to build me up, build you up, but to recognize For the first time in 2,000 years, there are people walking around that have the testimony of Yahushua and keep the commandments. They're returning to the feasts. They're returning to his Sabbaths. They're returning to righteous, holy living in a sick and iniquitous world. This shows that we are dealing with enlightened people in this generation and with that we should be able to see with our sight our own sin and the danger that we're all tempted to fall into right look at verse 3 and for verse 13 of chapter 10 excuse me and as for the wheels they are called in my hearing the whirling wheels can you imagine what that sound i mean I mean, it, this, this, this is the stuff of visions and nightmares almost. I mean, if you think that you would not be terrified to hear these whirling wheels, and people come to me and say, oh, I heard the voice of Yahweh. I'm like, wow. I mean, animals calf. Really? Are you sure that was the voice, or did you just have too much garlic on your noodles? Be careful of what you speak because there are serious consequences to what you say. So sometimes people come to me with these long tails and I'm like, if you truly heard that, then why wouldn't Yahweh have showed me that he needed to say this about me? Why would he send you? Because if you heard the voice of Yahweh, I think that you would be buckled over on your face. So I know that I sure would. So we have to be tempered with wisdom, understanding, and discernment in these days when there are literally wolves with sheep's clothing amongst us and deceivers, liars. And as for the wheels, they are called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. And the first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. And the third face, the face of a lion. And the fourth face, the face of an eagle. One day we're all going to be together in glory, in a perfect state. I believe that is what is ultimately signified by the rounding of the wheel. Perfection. You can move the most impossible things with a wheel. You can move things that are immovable by a simple wheel. A wheel is perfection 
in an imperfect world. And the cherubim, verse 15, they mounted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river Chebar. And where the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them also. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to the mount up from the earth, the wheels also turned, not from beside them. This brings me to a New Testament verse that speaks of this very thing. Yaakov, James chapter 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, and the sinful world a forest. So is the tongue among our members. It can defile the whole body and sets on fire the course of our Israelite race that rolls on like a wheel, and it burns with the fire of hell. Context, what's going on? The prophet Ezekiel is telling them because of the words that have proceeded out of their mouth. They've been uttering the words of idolatry and lifting up the false idols of the world. By the very testimony of their mouth, judgment is coming upon them. It is rolling towards them from the north. It's going to be used. The hammer and anvil of Nebuchadnezzar is rolling towards them. A cycle of destruction. And it is eventually going to burn like hell as the fires and flames of Jerusalem will be seen for miles. Now the writer James, Yaakov, the half-brother of Yahusha, he is in the prophetic wheel of the future, and he's about to see what? The very destruction of that same city, is he not? But not by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, but by the hands of Titus, and he's linking it to the very same thing, the mouth, the tongue, and the very same judgment which is cyclically rolling towards them like a wheel. It's going to affect the whole Israelite race. There's no longer going to be 12 tribes. They're all scattered, including the house of Judah. Judgment is coming. And he says in James chapter 6, It can defile the whole body and it sets on fire the course of our Israelite race that rolls on like a wheel. And some of you are looking in your Bible and say, it doesn't say that. Well, let's look at it actually in the Greek. The Greek word of James chapter 3 verse 6 is ton trachon tes genesis. Ton trachon tes genesis, and it literally means sets on fire the course of our Israelite race that rolls on like a wheel. Meaning, if you and I can't control our tongue, we will destroy our return to the Genesis cycle of Abrahamic covenants of blessing that are supposed to roll forward through our generations and prophetically arrive at the last generation of those who are going to raise up their children with the word of Yahusha and the testimony of keeping his commandments. If we can't control our tongues, 
If we can't edify and lift up the one true living Elohim, if we can't stand up to the old men in our families that have closed their ears to truth, they've just got happy and content. If you can't stand up and speak truth to your family members that know, I do not accept the paganism. I do not accept the syncretism. It's not right. It's not righteous and it's not in the Bible. I'm not doing it. If you don't make that stand, then guess what? That cycle of blessing, it will not roll down to your seed. And conversely, there are some of you that are grandfathers and grandmothers that have taken that stand and you are starting to see the cycle of blessing truly, truly come to your seed in generations. That's the testimony. I see it before me. And this is your reward in these days. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom coming to your house, to your generations by the word of the testimony that comes forth from your mouth. If we can't control our tongue, we'll destroy our return to the Genesis cycle of covenants. The covenants that roll out from Genesis 12 and 15 and Exodus 19 like a wheel and it sets aflame our Israelite race from being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if we don't. Take heed of his word. What was it that got Israel in trouble when they left Egypt? Was it their hands? Was it their feet? What was it? It was their tongue, was it not? Come, make us gods that shall go up before us. Because Moshe, he's not, where is he? He's not coming back down from the mountain, that man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We have no idea what became of him. Come on, Aaron, get in the game. It was their tongue that led them astray. That cycle of blessing stopped because of the words that proceeded out of their mouth. It was the tongue of Aaron that proclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It was the tongue, was it not? Because we can read James and think, Oh yes, I control my... But seriously, that's where the whole origin of deception begins. It's a little member, isn't it? But it controls so much. Was it not the tongue of the elders back in chapter 8, verse 1, that proclaimed, Yahweh seeth us not. Yahweh has forsaken the land. It was their very tongue that started this whole vision of judgment against them. Israel broke the cycle from Genesis, the wheels of the covenant in Exodus 32 came tumbling down, didn't they? They broke. Those wheels broke right there. And how did Moshe choose to destroy their folly? With hail? With snow? Or was it that he set aflame the very, very gold, just as the man in linen is about to set aflame Jerusalem? I see these symbols of cyclical rolling throughout the very Bible because it's one book. It's amazing. Now think about that. We live in Oregon, right? I remember going and speaking at Passion for Truth in Missouri, and I thought, oh my goodness, everyone was trying to leave Missouri a hundred years ago. I mean, literally, weren't they? Missouri to come to Oregon. 
I mean, it's, it's a different place. I'm glad we're here. And we not only live in Oregon, we actually, as my mother says, what does she say? The Willamette. The, we live in the Willamette Valley, the Willamette Valley. But then Americans go over to England and they go, oh, I love the River Thames. Oh, look at Leicester Square. I'm like, watch it. What? That was you. Leicester Square. Leicester Square. It's the River Thames. So, you know, it it goes both ways. But we live in the very valley, the Willamette, where people sought to come. And how did they come here? Wagons. And those wagon wheels were a cycle. What happened? That first wagon came across and it begins to wear a rut in the ground. And then the next wagon, you can still actually see the wagon wheel ruts along the Oregon Trail. You can still see them. This is what Yahweh was telling us. My cycles from Genesis... My Sabbaths, my feasts, my Moedim, they are wheels that are supposed to wear a rut in your lives, in your generations, so that the old man starts doing it, and then the women do it, and then the children, and it makes it easier and easier and easier for each successive generation to walk in the ways of Yahweh. That's it. Or you can let this stinking world wear you down in its ruts and you will literally be set on fire for hell. But either way, you're going to choose which rut to ride. And I'm riding the rut of Yahweh's cyclical cycles throughout my generations from Genesis that will roll prophetically forward. It is his Sabbaths, his feasts, his Moedim. That is how he's designed it. And by you doing it, it's made it easier for your son. And now you guys are going to be blessed that your children are going to get to do it. It gets easier for each successive generation if you stick to the righteousness of Yahweh, this is powerful. I mean, it truly, truly is. And and this is what's really amazing. I'm not making this up. Because, (laughs) I mean, I know you might think I am. But I'm really not. And I'm going to explain. I'm actually going to link this back to the Bible. Because a a wheel, a cycle, wears a rut in the ground. And this really blows my mind. If you go into your Bible, cycle and ox are the same Hebrew word. Why? What would they do with an ox? They would tie him and he would walk around a wheel, a cycle, and tread out the grain. An ox and cycle, it's the same Hebrew word. An ox goes around and around. Don't muzzle the ox. Stay in Yahweh's cycles. You can look that up in the Tanakh. I, I forgot to put the reference in. I was just so excited. But this is amazing stuff. Cycle and ox are literally synonymous Hebrew words because oxen tread grain in a cycle tied to a threshing wheel. Ox and cycle can be the same Hebrew words. 
This is amazing. Yahweh's got it all right for us there. Yahweh's commandments, his Sabbaths, his feasts, they are a cycle that are designed to wear a rut in our lives down to the next generations, making it easier for them to walk in his ways and see his path. My son, my daughters, my sons, they do not have the trials and tribulations that we've had because they are recipients to the blessings. And some of the conversations we have when we're coming to congregation on Shabbat during the month of December would blow your mind. You'll be laughing all the way here because their worldview is these people are insane. They are cutting trees down and bringing them into their house and then taking light. What is, and this is, I mean, they're like, whoa. These, no, no, you, this is, you see, when you start to look at it through the eyes of a child, they're like, whoa. Because they have got the blessings because that rut has worn a trail for them to go on that makes the path much easier. The more you do it, the more you do it, the more a part of your life it becomes, doesn't it? It guards you from idolatry. It guards you from apostasy. And it secures your posterity. That's amazing. Now, of course, the outer wheel in the vision, the outer wheel is slower. Because the outer wheel represents the 7,000-year plan. Look at it. It's slower. The outer wheel, being slower, represents the 7,000-year plan of Yahuwah. Whereas that inner wheel, it's faster. It's faster. It's representing the yearly cycle of his seven feasts, his seven-day Sabbath. Do you see that? This is pretty amazing. These are all cyclical commandments of righteousness. But the priests, the elders, they had corrupted the inner wheel. They had corrupted it by forsaking his feasts. They had corrupted it by forsaking his Sabbaths. And they were replacing it with the worship of Tammuz and Baal, Peor, by corrupting the inner wheel. What happens if you corrupt the inner wheel? Are you going to get into the millennium? By fire. And you'll become ashes. Under the feet of the righteous. That's what the Bible says. So by corrupting that inner wheel, they weren't able to discern the coming judgment of the outer wheel. And we stand in that sixth to seventh year of the outer wheel. We are encroaching upon millennial judgment. And this is what we need to be able to discern. And you'll never discern it. If you can't even stay within the cycle of the inner wheel. Look at verse 17. And when they stood, these stood. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the ruach of the living creature was in them. I see this how some believers, they've literally just stopped. Stopped growing. They've just stood still. Look at this wheel. Making no progress in knowledge. No progress in experience. No progress in practice of their faith. Don't stand still. 
Look at verse 18. And the glory of Yahweh went forth from over the threshold of the house, and he stood over the Herovim. And the Herovim lifted up their wings, and they mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went forth as the wheels beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of Yahweh's house. And the glory of Elohim, the Elohim of Israel, was over them above in motion and ready to depart they were mounted up ready to leave the land of judea now of course that land of judea where prophetically we know that the gospel was first preached and just as here the jews upon hearing the gospel they set out against the disciples didn't they just as they had set out against the prophets right here and then the disciples just like jeremiah and ezekiel before were in kind, slighted, and despised by the nation. And so the apostles, later, these first ministers of the gospel, they were filled with that very ruach that's departing in our narrative, weren't they? They were filled with the very ruach of Yahweh. And likewise, what happened to the apostles? What happened to the disciples? Did they take flight from the temple? Yes, they did. And where did they go? Up onto the Mount of Olives. History will tell you that the very burial places of the disciples is up on the Mount of Olives. Because, of course, that was where the first assembly would congregate. Where did they congregate after that Last Supper? In that very place, in that very garden. This was the assembly because that was where they knew the Ruach was. And just as the Jews persecuted the prophets, they persecuted the apostles and the disciples. And just as the glory of Yahweh departed from the temple over onto the Mount of Olives, so did the disciples and the apostles depart from the temple over to that first congregation up there on the Mount of Olives. What did Yahushua say? Behold, your house shall be left unto you desolate. And then in Acts chapter 6, we can see that those first adherents, many were priests, Levitical priests. And the word of Elohim, Acts chapter 6 verse 7, increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem, Jerusalem exceedingly and a great company of the Levitical priests became obedient to the faith. If you were a Levitical priest, obedient to the faith, could you stay in the sanctuary? Or did you have to depart with the glory of Elohim over onto the Mount of Olives? This is a cycle. We have got to look at the cycles because it's rolling forward toward the Great Tribulation. We have a roadmap to success. Just follow the ruts. Just follow the ruts. This is the living creature, verse 20, that I saw under the Elohim of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were Cherovim. How did he know that? Well, these forms actually were carved on the Nicanor doors in the temple. That's how he knew it. Verse 21, every one had four faces and every one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. 
This is showing us the contrast between the government of the lower world and the affairs of it represented by the four wheels and the government of the upper realm, the upper, upper world that is represented by the four living creatures. Yahweh shows Ezekiel right here in the opening vision, what we call chapter 8, how his will was disobeyed by men on earth. But here he shows him how readily it is obeyed by angels and the inferior creatures. This is reminiscent, of course, of Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless Yahweh, ye his angels, that are mighty in strength, that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. You see, the living creatures and the wheels agree to serve Yahuwah, demonstrating his sovereignty, his headship over all things. Look at verse 22. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the faces which I saw by the river Chebar. Their appearances and themselves, they went everyone straight forward. I want to take a side note and mention this because a couple of people have contacted me. One of my favorite little narratives is to say this. You all know I say it all the time. A text out of context creates a pretext and error begets error and you all fall down into destruction. So we've got to be very careful with verse 22 not to use... I Jesus, putting our thoughts into the text, but let's just exegesis, extract from what's in. Some people will say, well, see, look, your whole philosophy and theology of these 13 scrolls falls flat on its face right here because verse 22 is actually talking about chapter 1. What do you do with that? Well, that is called eisegesis. You're putting your own thoughts into the text. This doesn't say anything about that. But let's break it down a little bit. What is the prophet referring to? What is it referring to? There's a material difference between this narrative of text and what's called Ezekiel chapter 1. Can anyone see what the material difference is? Because that's actually in the text. There's a material difference the text in what's called chapter 1 speaks of an ox. Do we see any ox here? Oh. We see a cheruv. That's a material textual difference that we have to take note of. Now, theologians, theologians for millennia, they have come up with all kinds of crazy narratives to try and justify the material difference. Well, why in chapter 1 was it an ox? But here in chapter 10, it's a cherub. Well, really, the ox transfer. They come up with these crazy ideas because they're trying to justify the Masoretic chapter and verse, which we don't have to justify because this is 13 scrolls. This is scroll 1, and therefore chapter 1 doesn't precede it. This is the first vision. And the first vision, I don't have to do Bible gymnastics. I don't have to try and put my own thoughts into the text. The text says what it says. The first vision speaks of a cherub, a cherub. And... This is what he's talking about. Where did Ezekiel receive his visions? By the river Chebar. 
The text doesn't tell us which vision this is talking about, except we know it's the first vision. The text of chapter 1, way back then, but really it's in the prophetic forward, speaks of an ox. To link this text with that would be using eisegesis. We can't do it. The material difference you have to make note of, and that is the cherub, not an ox. There's a cherub in verse 22, speaks of a cherub, and it directs the reader, look at the text, back to the river Chebar, which is the very place of many of Ezekiel's visions. It does not direct us back to which vision. If you start surmising it's this vision, then you're putting your own thoughts into the text and you're violating the text. We've got to slow things down. People just jump way in and then you're actually dragging in 2,000 years of theology. But that's not the Bible. It's clarity, I think, and I'm so thankful that I'm unchurched. I really am. So thankful. Because what some people just struggle to see, I have such clarity because all I've ever known since I got saved was just reading the Bible. And that uncluttered thinking enables you to easily discern because you've got nothing but the Word in you. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes people have got such church baggage or theological baggage, or familial baggage, because you've got generate... My, my parents were heathens, I mean, so it was hard, but now it's easy, right? So again, look at the text. Verse 22 is, of course, speaking of a cherub, not an ox. And this cherub then, this vision directs the reader back to the river Chebar, which is the place of many of Ezekiel's visions. It does not direct us back to which vision. Or, for us to jump that far into um, eisegesis would be a tragedy, because it does not direct us back to which vision, just the location and the origin of his multiple visions. And now, again, we don't have to convolute the text. Does that make sense? Because I think that came through email. Does that make sense to you? He's not even paying attention. He's checking everything. Look, what are you in, Esau right now? See, I knew it. Making sure he's... But we do today live in such a world. Look at these wheels. We live in a world that is subject to turns. It is subject to changes and various revolutions. And the course of affairs in it is represented by these wheels, going back to the text. But we're not to be tossed to and fro. That's what James says. We are not to be tossed to and fro by the storms of the world. We're to hold fast. Hold fast to Yahweh's cyclical revolutions of Yahweh's commandments, his times, his seasons. Because they will truly wear a rut in our lives And those ruts will reach down to the next successive generations and they'll be able to travel far more easily upon that path which you struggled upon, that path that I struggled upon. And though we, like the wheels, are all moved in several ways, we're all different. You're different than me, you're different, I'm different, everybody's different. But we're all called to walk this life because Yahweh cries out, Oh, wheel, oh, wheel. 
Because at the end of the day, we're all going to be one. Even though we're individuals, we're ultimately all going to be one. And Yahweh calls out, oh, wheel! Because we're going to be guided by that one Ruach to the very end. And who will we see? That very man standing in linen. This is the cyclical rut that Yahweh is leading us to. And whatever difficulties lay in our way, and we have them, whatever difficulties lay in our way, the wheel's way, we're sure to get over them. How? Because we're never going to stand still. We're never going to go back. We just continue in the rut. And that rut, even though there may be a bump in the road, you just follow the rut of Yahweh's cycles and seasons, and it will lead you to the man in linen. This scroll, as we open in it, and I know we're only in the second segment, but it informs us how judgment begins, and we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention. Our leaders, the old men, they need to be beware. They need to beware. They should have known better. They should have known better. They should have steered the next generation towards righteousness, but they didn't. You're on a downward slope. You've reached the zenith and far surpassed it of your life cycle. You're now on a downward slope. Your time is nigh. Repent, old men, is what the judge is saying. But young people, look at the young people. Wake up, young people. You should have the strength. You should have the energy to stand up and drive back evil. Why aren't you doing it? Because you've been poisoned. You've been polluted. You've listened to all the propaganda. And you can barely stand. That's what I see with the young people. So therefore the judgment is coming down to you mothers. Mothers, you failed to raise your children in the way. Instead, you left them to the state. Whilst you turned a blind eye to paganism and religious syncretism and the comforts of the world, you left your children to the state. Judgment's coming upon you. And children, children, Resist the spirit of the time. The television is full of the spirit of the time. You can tell about kids that sit in front of the TV to kids that don't. There's a different spirit. You can tell the kids that are immersed in the state re-educational programs than children that aren't. There is a different spirit. It's the spirit of of the times children judgment is coming upon you because you didn't resist the spirit of the times instead instead death and defiance and the world view has come upon many of the children and ultimately it cycles back to the leaders down to the young people, mothers and children, leaders, young people, mothers and children. It's a cycle. Which rut will you choose? Which rut will you choose? Yahweh's commandments, his Sabbaths, his feasts, the cycles that wear a rut in our lives down to the next generations. Or you'll just let the world wear a rut in you. And I see it on people. 
They've got no strength. They've been polluted and corrupted down to the very core. It makes it so much easier for the world just to walk and wear a rut. They've been driven over by a Mack truck, haven't they? And they've got no strength to stand. Makes it easier for depression, oppression, and repression to wear a rut in people's lives, bypassing their successive generations and leaving a whole society segment bankrupt. This is all about the cycles of life. That's how I see this vision. It opens with judgment and it closes somberly. But we've still got many, many parts of this vision to unpack. But I think that's all I can fit into today. But this is a serious admonition that we are a people that have been raised up in this generation and we have chosen the rut of righteousness and we're seeing the blessings in the next generations. It's so much easier for our kids, for your grandkids, so much easier. I think of the struggles trying to understand these things that then people that are coming into it get it far quicker than I did. It gets quicker and quicker and quicker because we have blazed a trail rolled that wheel of prophetic cycles forward and we're all following along and it's going to get more and more and more better and better and better truly either way there's a rut out there you've just got to choose which one and the majority theirs will lead to fire and gehenna but ours will lead to the millennial reign it's amazing stuff questions comments anybody it's a nice light message wasn't it (laughs) nothing lovely fabulous oh okay yes sir pastor in the front Um, something you said are you getting it you said are you getting it and you felt like you were all by yourself yes in a way you were I, having had many years of pastoral leadership, for at least two years, I've been unlearning. I was in the church, and the church was very good to me. And I am in the process of unlearning what I have learned, which you didn't have to worry about. And I believe with all my heart that there are going to be times, even with us, that you're going to feel alone I am a learner, and I am listening to what you're saying, and I will be one of those that he wants me to be. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And I think we've seen the testimony of so many following now that their journey is so much easier. And I, to me, that is the biggest blessing, the biggest blessing, the biggest blessing, truly. Amen. So, Abba, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Abba, for the prophet Ezekiel, for your word. And, Abba, we pray truly that many, many would follow in your cycles of righteousness. And, Abba, we thank you for the honor and the privilege of being able to be those that have come down that trail. And, Abba, we pray now that you would bring forth a multitude to follow in that ruts of righteousness rather than the ruts of rotting decay. Abba, give people the ears to hear, the visions and clarity to see the way in these dark days in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen.
Amen. All right.